Okay, this is my first read of Politics and the English Language. And I want to remind you of our purpose for reading, that we're looking for basically to understand it, but also really kind of reading to determine, you know, it said that this essay was written in between Animal Farm and 1984. And they think that this essay has the foreshadow of the development of newspeak or that vague language that becomes meaningless because it is meant to hide the truth rather than express it. So kind of some dangerous ideas in there. All right, we begin on page 81. Most people who bother with the matter at all would admit that the English language is in a bad way. So it's not having a good successful time right now. Most people who bother with the matter at all would admit that the English language is in a bad way. But it is generally assumed that we cannot, by conscious action, do anything about it. Our civilization is decadent, and our language, so the argument runs, must inevitably share in the general collapse. It follows that any struggle against the abuse of language is a sentimental archaism, like preferring candles to electric light or handsome cabs to airplanes. Underneath this lies the half-conscious belief that language is a natural growth and not an instrument with which we shape our own purposes. So language is a tool that we use purposefully. Now, it is clear that the decline of language must ultimately have political and economic causes. It is not due simply to the bad influence of this or that individual writer, but an effect can become a cause, reinforcing the original cause and producing the same effect in an intensified form, and so on indefinitely. Well, this is kind of what we are <clears throat> getting to and looking for our reading purpose. He's saying that some of the things that are happening with the denigration of the language is because of political and economic things that were going on. I'm on line 20. A man may take to drink because he feels himself to be a failure and then fail all the more completely because he drinks. It is rather the same thing that is happening to the English language. So we've got this metaphor now about drinking and now we have to apply it to the English language. It becomes ugly and inaccurate because our thoughts are foolish. But the slovenliness of our language, like a sloth, lazy, makes it easier for us to have foolish thoughts. There we go. You see the progression? Because we're lazy, then we have foolish thoughts. The point is that the process is reversible, so maybe there's hope. Modern English, especially written English, is full of bad habits which spread by imitation and which can be avoided if one is willing to take the necessary trouble. If one gets rid of these habits, one can think more clearly. And to think clearly is a necessary first step 
toward political regeneration so that the fight against bad English is not frivolous and is not the exclusive concern of professional writers. I will come back to this presently and hope that by that time, the meaning of what I have said here will have become clearer. So he's giving us a preview to what he's about to say to further explain what he means, which is also a signal that as readers, we would need to return to this section to revisit and rethink and refine our understanding and our thoughts because of the language that he's used. Meanwhile, here are five specimens of the written of the English language as it is now habitually written. <laughs> Uh-oh. These five passages have not been picked out because they are especially bad. I could have quoted far worse if I had chosen. But because they illustrate various of the mental vices from which we now suffer, they, and a vice, I think that's a purposeful reference to the vice of alcoholism that he mentioned in the first section. <clears throat> they don't improve our life or our thinking patterns. They are a little below the average, but are fairly representative examples. I number them so that I can refer back to them when necessary. So this means we also will need to reference and come back to page 83 through 85 to see what he's talking about with each one of them. So now let's look at a little bit of where they came from first. You see that one is from a professor, um, and it was excerpted from an essay that he wrote. We have another professor in number two. Uh, there's an essay on psychology in politics, which is from New York. There was a communist pamphlet, a letter in the Tribune newspaper, and then that's the last one. So let's dig into these five samples. Now remember, he's going to use them to show what's wrong with the people write that impacts the way they think and thereby how we think. Okay, this is from Professor Harold Lasky's essay in Freedom of Expression. I am not indeed sure whether it is not true to say that the Milton who once seemed not unlike a 17th century Shelley had not become, out of an experience ever more bitter in each year, more alien to the founder of that Jesuit sect which nothing could induce him to tolerate. Number two, above all, we cannot play ducks and drakes with a native battery of idioms which prescribes egregious collocations of vocables in the basic put up with for tolerate or put at a loss for bewilder. Professor Lancelot Hogben from a text called Interglossia. Number three, 
On the side, we have the free personality. By definition, it is not neurotic, for it has neither conflict nor dream. It desires, such as they are, are transparency, for they are just what institutional approval keeps in the forefront of consciousness. Another institutional pattern would alter their number and intensity. There is little in them that is natural, irreducible, or culturally dangerous. But on the other side, the social bond itself is nothing but the mutual reflection of these self-secure integrities. Recall the definition of love? Is not this the very picture of a small academic? Where is there a place in this hall of mirrors for either personality or fraternity? So this is an essay on psychologists in the uh, a publication on, uh, called Politics, published in, the, in New York. I don't know about you, but I'm not understanding much of this. It sounds like gobbledygook. Number four, all the best people from the gentlemen's clubs and all the frantic fascist captains united in common hatred of socialism and bestial horror at the rising tide of the mass revolutionary movement have turned to acts of provocation, to foul incendiarism, to medieval legends of poisoned wells, to legalize their own destruction of proletarian organizations and rouse the agitated petty bourgeois and to chauvinistic fervor on behalf of the fight against the revolutionary uh, way out of the crisis. It's a communist pamphlet. Number five, if a new spirit is to be infused into this old country, there is one thorny and contentious reform which must be tackled, and that is the humanization and galvanization of the BBC. Timidity here will bespeak canker and atrophy of the soul. The heart of Britain may be sound and of strong beat, for instance, but the lion, British lion's roar at present is like that of the bottom in Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream, as gentle as any sucking dove. A virile new Britain cannot continue indefinitely to be traduced in the eyes, or rather ears, of the world by the effete languors of the Langham Place, brazenly masquerading as standard English. When the voice of Britain is heard at nine o'clock, better far and infinitely less ludicrous to hear H's honestly dropped than the present priggish, inflated, inhibited, school-mammish, arch-braying of blameless, bashful, mewing maidens. There's a letter in the Tribune. So now we get to hear what Orwell thought about each of those passages. I'm on page 86. Each of these passages has faults of its own which I'm quite relieved to hear him say, but quite apart from avoidable ugliness, two qualities are common to all of them. The first is staleness of imagery. So in other words, we can't in our minds 
picture what the writers are saying. The other is lack of precision. So that's interesting. I wonder what he means by that. The writer either has a meaning and cannot express it, or he inadvertently says something else, or he is almost indifferent as to whether his words mean anything or not. <laughs> like he doesn't even care. This mixture of vagueness and sheer incompetence is the most marked characteristic of modern English prose, and especially of any kind of political writing. Wow, I'm so glad to say that here that he didn't think they made sense either. As soon as certain topics are raised, the concrete melts into the abstract, and no one seems to be able to think of turns of speech that are not hackneyed prose consist less and less of word, words phrases. Ooh, that sounds like that newspeak part. Words phrases tacked together like sections of a prefabricated hen house. I list below, with notes and examples, the various tricks by means of which the work of prose construction is habitually dodged. Okay, so the first section he has is about dying metaphors. It looks like it continues almost to the end of page 87, so let's tackle that part next. So the first one that he talks about are dying metaphors. So if I'm thinking about what he said before, these word phrases tacked together, these hackneyed prose, these are metaphors or phrases that used to mean something, but they've become so common that they don't really mean anything anymore. A newly invented metaphor assists thought by evoking a visual image. And remember before when he talked about the problem common to them on line 120, the first is staleness as imagery. So these metaphors are so common that they no longer help us make those images. A newly invented metaphor assists thought, helps you think, be precise, by evoking a visual image. While on the other hand, a metaphor which is technically dead, for example, iron resolution, which I have no idea what that means, which is exactly his point, has in effect reverted to being an ordinary word and can generally be used without the loss of vividness. Hmm. I think I may not have understood that correctly. It's dead, iron resolution. It's become an ordinary word, can generally be used without the loss of vividness. Okay. But in between these two classes, there's a huge dump of worn out metaphors. Okay, so he's saying that that iron resolution still is okay. Like you might have the strength of iron when you resolve to do something. So that still works. But there's another kind of metaphor. There is a huge dump of worn out metaphors which have lost all evocative power and merely are used because they save people the trouble of inventing phrases for themselves, which reminds me of what he said in uh, right above line 124, that they're lazy. They don't even care that the words mean nothing. Examples are, ring the changes on, take up the cudgel, cudgel for, take up the cudgel for, toe the line, 
ride roughshod over, stand shoulder to shoulder with, play into the hands of, no axe to grind, grist to the mill, fishing in troubled waters on the order of the day, Achilles heel, swan song, hat bed. So this is what we call cliches nowadays. Many of these words are used without knowledge of their meaning. What is a rift, for instance? And you guys, I would ask, what is grist to the mill? Do we even understand that or bring those images to mind that help us understand what they mean? And incompatible metaphors are frequently mixed, a sure sign that the writer is not interested in what he is saying. Some metaphors, now current, have been twisted out of their original meaning without those who use them even being aware of the fact. For example, toe the line is sometimes written as T-O-W, the line. I think that would completely change the meaning. One, you're putting your toe along the line. <clears throat> the other, you're pulling on a line. Another example is the hammer and the anvil, now always used with the anticipation that the anvil gets the worst of it. In real life, it is always the anvil that breaks the hammer, never the other way about. The writer who stopped to think what he was saying would avoid perverting the original phrase. Which also means that as readers, we really have to be aware of does the metaphor or the visualization really mean what it's supposed to mean? And really kind of push against the text to make sure we understand what they're saying really fits with the logical reasoning in the text. Okay, we dive into a new section on page 92 and just kind of looking onto the rest of the pages in the section. <clears throat> it really seems to be a pretty long continuation. I really don't see a break until page 103 um, where it looks like he's turning into giving advice. So let's really pay attention to the line of reasoning with this because he's going to lead us through a lot of different thoughts in this section. Now that I have made this catalog of swindles and perversion, let me give another example of the kind of writing that they lead to. This time, it must be of its nature be an imaginary one. Okay, so this is cool. Remember Animal Farm was kind of a story and now 1984 is a story. He's kind of making uh, an imaginary one, a fiction one to describe what he feels like this language is doing. I am going to translate a passage of good English into modern English of the worst sort. Here is a well-known verse from Ecclesiastes. Oh, okay, so he's reading from the Bible. So here's what it says. I returned and saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift nor the battle to the strong, neither yet bread to the wise nor yet riches to the men of understanding, nor yet favor to men of skill, but time and chance happeneth to them all. So now he's going to change it and make it awful. Objective considerations of contemporary phenomena compel the conclusion that success or failure in competitive activities 
exhibits no tendency to be commensurate with innate capacity, but that a considerable element of the unpredictable must invariably taken, be taken into account. <laughs> that is a parody, but not a very gross one. Exhibit 3 above, for instance, contains several patches of the same kind of English. Okay, so that would be Exhibit 3. So you got to turn back to that one on page 84, the one that had that essay about politics. You might want to pause and see which pieces of that seem to have those same kinds of silly phrases in them. It will be seen that I have not made a full translation. The beginning and ending of the sentences follow the original meaning fairly closely, but in the middle, the concrete illustrations, race, battle, bread, dissolve into the vague phrases, success or failure in competitive activities. This had to be so because no modern writer of the kind I am discussing, no one capable of using phrases like objective considerations of contemporary phenomena, would ever tabulate his thoughts in that precise and detailed way. The whole tendency of modern prose is away from concreteness. Now analyze these two sentences a little more closely. The first contains only 49 words, but only 60 syllables. So he's looking, I think, on the example on page, on lines around line 290. And all of those words are of everyday life. Yes, from Ecclesiastes. The second contains 38 words of 90 syllables. So fewer words and more syllables. 18 of those words are from Latin roots and one from Greek. The first sentence contains six vivid images and only one phrase, time and chance, that could be called vague. The second contains not a single fresh arresting phrase. And in spite of its 90 syllables, it only gives a shortened version of the meaning contained in the first. Yet, without a doubt, it is the second kind of sentences that is gaining ground in modern English. I do not want to exaggerate. This kind of writing is not yet universal, and outcrops of simplicity will occur here and there in the worst written page. Still, if you or I were told to write a few lines on the uncertainty of human fortunes, we should probably come much nearer to my imaginary sentence than to the one from Ecclesiastes. As I have tried to show, modern writing is at its worst, at its worst, does not consist in picking out words for the sake of their meaning and inventing images in order to make the meaning clearer. Instead, it consists in gumming together long strips of words which has already been set in order by someone else and making the results presentable by sheer humbug. The attraction of this way of writing is that it is easy. It is ever easier, even quicker, once you have the habit to say, in my opinion, it is not unjustifiable assumption than to say, I think. If you use ready-made phrases, you not only do not have to hunt for the words, you also don't have to bother with the rhythms of your sentences since these phrases are generally so arranged as to be more or less euphonious. 
when you're composing in a hurry, when you're dictating to a stenographer, for instance, or making a public speech, it is natural to fall into a pretentious, Latinized style. Tags like, a consideration which we should do well to bear in mind, or in a conclusion to which all of us would readily dissent, will save many a sentence for coming down with a bump. By using stale metaphors, similes, and idioms, you save much mental effort at the cost of leaving your meaning vague, not only for your reader, but for yourself. This is the significance of mixed metaphors. The sole aim of a metaphor is to call up a visual image. When these images clash, as in the fascist octopus has sung its swan song, <laughs> that's funny, an octopus doesn't have a swan song. <laughs> the jackboot is thrown into the melting pot. So a jackboot is a certain kind of metaphor and a melting pot is another one. And they mix them together and it creates a muddled picture of what is intended. It can be taken as certain that the writer was not seeing the mental image of the objects he is naming. In other words, he's not really thinking. Look at the examples I gave in the beginning of this essay. Professor Lasky in number one. Okay, that is the one where he was writing about freedom of expression. I am not indeed sure whether it is not true to say that Milton, that one, uses five negatives in 53 words. One of these is superfluous, making nonsense of the whole passage. And in addition, there is the slip, alien, for akin, making further nonsense. That's why it had the SIC next to it, because he was admitting that it wasn't the right word, and they knew it. And several avoidable pieces of clumsiness, which increase the general vagueness. Professor Hopkin plays ducks and drakes with a battery, which is able to write prescriptions. That's just nonsense, y'all. And while disapproving of the everyday phrase put up with, is unwilling to look egregious up in the dictionary to see what it means. So in other words, he used the word wrong. That's hilarious. Uh, the third one, uh, that is the one on page 84, I believe. On the one side, we have the free personality. By definition, it is not neurotic. No, that one is one he's taking. Okay. If one takes up an uncharitable attitude towards it, it's simply meaningless. Probably one could work out the intended meaning by reading the whole article in which it occurs. In number four, the writer more or less knows what he wants to say, but an accumulation of stale phrases chokes him like tea leaves blocking a sink. <laughs> I notice he's used a really good metaphor there to describe how the impact of his language choked the reader's interpretations and the writer's ability to write clearly. In number five, words and meaning have almost parted company. <laughs> That's hilarious. So it's, he uses a metaphor here to have part company to, you know, like not agree with each other anymore. People who write it in this manner usually have a general emotional meaning. They dislike one thing and want to express solidarity with another. But they are not interested in the detail of what they are saying. A scrupulous writer 
in every sentence that he writes, will ask himself at least four questions. I think I'm going to have to write these down. What am I trying to say? What words will express it? What image or idiom will make it more clear? Is this image fresh enough to have an effect? And he will probably ask himself two more. Could I put it more shortly? Have I said anything that is avoidably ugly? <laughs> but you are not obliged to go all this trouble. You can shirk it by simply throwing your mind open and letting the ready-made phrases come crowding in. They will construct your sentences for you, even think your thoughts for you to a certain extent. Ooh, that's that foreshadowing piece of newspeak. And at need, they will perform important service of partially concealing your meaning even from yourself. At this point, that the special connection between politics and the debasement of language becomes clear. Ah, now we have where he's moving with his thesis. So he's given it all of these examples and we're coming back to where he said in that first section that he would hope that what he described would help make his points more clear. So it may be a good idea to go back and reread the first couple of pages. But we have this where he comes down to turning and transitioning into the last part or the next part of what he's saying. At this point, the special connection between politics and the debasement of our language becomes clear. So how is that clear? In our time, it is broadly true that political writing is bad writing. Where it is not true, it will generally be found that the writer is some kind of rebel, expressing his private opinions and not a party line. Orthodoxy of what other coveler seems to demand lifeless, imitative style. The political dialects to be found in pamphlets, leading articles, manifestos, white papers, and the speeches of undersecretaries do, of course, vary from party to party, but they are all alike in that one almost never finds in them a fresh, vivid, homemade turn of speech. When one watches some tired hack on the platform mechanically repeating the familiar phrases, bestial atrocities, iron heel, blood-stained tyranny, free peoples of the world stand shoulder to shoulder, one often has a curious feeling that one is not watching a live human being with some kind of dummy. A feeling which suddenly becomes stronger at moments when the light catches the speaker's spectacles and turns them into blank discs which seem to have no eyes behind them. And this is not altogether fanciful. A speaker who issues that kind of phraseology has gone some distance toward turning himself into a machine. And if you will remember what you looked up about 1984 and the machine, I think you're seeing what we were looking for of how his reasoning in this essay led him to where he was going next with Newspeak in 1984. The appropriate noises are coming out of his larynx, but his brain is not involved. 
as it would be if he were choosing his words for himself. If the speech he is making is one that he is accustomed to make over and over again, he may be almost unconscious of what he is saying, as one is when one utters responses in church. And this is reduced state of consciousness, if not indispensable, is at any rate favorable to political conformity. Y'all, that's scary that it just is about you conforming to these turns of phrase rather than thinking for yourself. In our time, political speech and writing are largely the defense of the indefensible. Things like the continuous continuance of British rule in India, the Russian purges and deportations, the dropping of atom bombs on Japan can indeed be defended, but only by arguments which are too brutal for most people to face and which do not square with the professed aims of the political parties. Thus, political language has to consist largely of euphemism, question begging, and sheer cloudy vagueness. Defenseless villages are bombarded from the air, the inhabitants driven out into the countryside, the cattle machine gunned, the huts set on fire with incendiary bullets. This is called pacification. Millions of peasants are robbed of their farms and sent trudging along the roads with no more than they carry. This is called transfer of population or rectification of frontiers. People are imprisoned for years without trial or shot in the back of the neck or sent to die of scurvy in the Arctic lumber camps. This is called elimination of unreliable elements. Such phraseology is needed if one wants to name things without calling up mental pictures of them. Consider for instance, some comfortable English professor defending Russian totalitarianism, he cannot say outright, I believe in killing off your opponents when you can get good results by doing so. Probably, therefore, he would say something like this. While freely conceding that the Soviet regime exhibits to certain features which the humanitarian may be inclined to deplore, we must, I think, agree that certain curtailment of the right to political opposition is an unavoidable concomitant of transitional periods, and that the rigors of which Russian people have been called upon to undergo have been amply justified in the sphere of concrete achievement. The inflated style itself is a kind of euphemism. A mass of Latin words falls upon the facts like soft snow, blurring the outline and covering up all the details. The great enemy of clear language is insincerity. When there is a gap between one's real and one's declared aims, one turns, as it were, instinctively to long words and exhausted idioms like a cuttlefish spurting out ink. In our age, there is no such thing as keeping out of politics. All issues are political issues, and politics itself is a mass of lies, evasions, folly, hatred, 
and schizophrenia. Well, when you talk about these were scathing criticisms, the, the animal farm and 1984, this last part is really, he's, he's really laying it on hard and saying how awful this practice is. I should expect to find, this is a guess, which I have not sufficient knowledge to verify, that the German, Russian, and Italian languages have all deteriorated in the last 10 to 15 years as a result of dictatorship. Wow. That the politics itself has caused the decline in language and thereby the decline in cognitive reasoning by its people. But if a thought corrupts language, language can also corrupt thought. A bad language usage can be spread by tradition and imitation even among people who should and do know better. The debased language that I have been discussing is in some ways very convenient. Phrases like not unjustifiable assumption leaves much to be desired, would serve no good purpose, a consideration which we should do well to bear in mind, or a continuous temptation, a packet of aspirins always at one's elbow. Look back through this essay, and for certain you will find that I have again and again committed the very faults I am protesting against. By this morning's post, I have received a pamphlet dealing with the conditions in Germany. The author tells me that he felt impelled to write it. I open it random, and here is almost the first sentence I see. The Allies have an opportunity not only of achieving a radical transformation of Germany's social and political structure in such a way as to avoid a nationalistic reaction in Germany itself, but at the same time laying out the foundations of a cooperative and unified Europe. You see, he feels impelled to write, feels, presumably, that he has something new to say. And yet his words, like cavalry horses answering the bugle, group themselves automatically into the familiar dreary pattern. The invasion of one's mind by readily made phrases lay the foundations, achieve a radical transformation, can only be prevented if one is constantly our guard against them. And every such phrase anesthetizes a portion of one's brain. <laughs> 